We serve a great God. I guess in the last couple months, I've been reminded of the greatness of God. I know I mentioned a number of times I've been very appreciative of just listening to people pray. And this past week, a couple people would have stopped in or called and prayed with me and would have been together with one of the missionary couples we support, Dave and Janet Keener, and one of the area pastors, and all three of them in public settings. And I've been told quite often over the years, you know, praying for you, Pastor, or, you know, praying. And in all three of those cases, even though we were in public settings, they said, we're not going to pray for you only, we're going to pray with you. And again, appreciate your prayers. I've been tremendously encouraged by those of you who pray. Maybe not with me, but you've expressed that you're praying for our church. Very, very important. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that you're great. You're far beyond us. You've given us your word, and we're grateful for that. And as we look at a portion of your word this morning, we want to be hearers and doers of your word. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Are we as a local church, are you as an individual tempted to be involved with the worship of idols. Are we as a local church, are we as individuals tempted to be involved in the worship of idols as we may worship God? It's a thought question to ponder as we think about 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, reading together verses 1 through 13 being willing to learn from history. And the general context in chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians is food sacrifice to idols. And the theme of these chapters would be love, not what you desire. And also, how will your action influence others within the body? No worship. Life is not about us. It's about God's glory, but it's also about how our lifestyles impact others. In the passage we'll be reading in just a few moments, Paul had just encouraged in chapter 9, 24 through 27, run to get the prize. And he talks about, you know, going into strict training. And then in chapter 10 and 1 through 13, we find that Paul looks at some historical examples and he says, here's some examples of those who ran, but they didn't get the prize because they didn't run correctly. Then in chapter 10, 14 through 17, he tells them how to run to get the prize. And he says, flee from idols. Let's read together. 
1 Corinthians 10, beginning with verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and get up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit, commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has seized you except what is is coming to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, as we look at this passage and a parallel passage in the Old Testament, he's writing to the Corinthians, a local church, He's writing to us. But he's writing to people who are a part of a bigger picture. In verse 1, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were under the cloud, referring to the Israelites. In verse 18, Consider the people of Israel. He's writing to the believers in Corinth. We live in the 21st century of America, but he's appealing to a bigger picture. Israel in the past. He also brings up the history of Israel's history of Israel, which contains some examples. And the word example means an an impression. It means to print. It's an image. Back in January, I went with Danny and the kids and a couple of yeah, Jacob was along, I guess, to the farm show. And we stayed the night for the rodeo. And we went into the rodeo, the large arena at the farm show building. And I wanted to go out and stretch my legs and do a little walking. So as I walked out, they said, you have, I have to stamp your hand so that you can get back in. Because if you don't get your hand stamped, you'll have to, you know, you have to buy another ticket. So I went out, walked around, came back in, and I just showed him my hand and you no know, little stamp there. What was that? They stamped it. That left an impression. Paul is saying these examples from Israel's history are to leave a mark on you. They're to leave an impression on how you live and how you respond. And keep in mind, too, that Paul is writing to a local church. He's not writing primarily to individuals, to a local church 
and the church being willing to learn from the example in Israel. Three vital factors to keep in mind. I guess I'm off there. In verse 1, notice what Paul says. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers. He talks about Israel. In verse 6, he says, These things occurred as examples to keep you from setting your heart on evil things. And in verse 11, these things happen as examples. Living in light of history is vital to get the prize. He's appealing to Israel's history. Live in light of Israel's history. And what does he do? He appeals to Israel's history. We mentioned it last week. They were all baptized into Moses. Israel as a whole followed Moses. They followed the cloud. They went through the Red Sea with Moses. They drank from the same spiritual drink. You know, the water that came from the rock. But yet they refused to go into the promised land. And what happened? Those over 20 years old died. Paul is saying, don't repeat the sins of your forefathers. Now look at verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. Corinthians, in light of Israel, don't set your heart on evil things. I think applicable to us today. To keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. And the idea of evil things is that which is bad quality, that which is worthless, that which is corrupt. So I'm writing these things so that you don't set your heart on evil things as they did. And then in verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and get up to indulge in pagan reverie. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Just to get the context, we know that the children of Israel had spent some 400 years in Egypt in slavery. God had delivered them from Egypt, the ten plagues of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. The Egyptian army was drowned. We find that there at Mount Sinai, they received the Ten Commandments. And notice in verse 22 of Exodus 20, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, You've seen for yourselves that I've spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice in it burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stone. 
for you will defile it by using a tool on it. And do not get up on my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. I go over to chapter 24. In the context of Israel receiving the law, we find in chapter 24 the covenant, what we call the Ten Commandments, are being confirmed. And how does Israel respond in chapter 24 and verses 3 and 4? When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down, or wrote down everything the Lord had said. So the people have responded. They said, yes, we want to follow the Lord's commands. And the situation with idolatry, go over to Exodus 32. Exodus chapter 32. Tied in with receiving the Ten Commandments. We find in Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. They've received the law. Moses has gone up to the mountain for a period of time. What is the temptation in verse 1 for Israel? It seems to be impatience. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, impatient, they gather around Aaron and say, come make us gods. So there's an impatience because Moses is not coming down from the mountain. So, make us gods who will go before us. And it wasn't too long beforehand that they had confirmed that they would obey the covenant. And that involved not making gods. So what happens in verse 2? Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings and your, that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what had, they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. So Aaron is the one who apparently fashions the calf. The people have brought their jewelry. And they are the ones that say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Now I want you to notice something in verses 5 and 6. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings, and afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and get up and to indulge in pagan reverie. Israel is not worshiping a false god. Clearly states, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord to Jehovah. 
They're worshiping God. They're worshiping the Lord, the independent self-existing one. But using a calf. Now that is very significant. Worship of the Lord, but with a golden calf. And what are they doing in their worship? So the next day the people rose up in verse 6 and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And God talked about burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then what happens? They sit down to eat and drink and get up to indulge in reverie. There's a festival to the Lord, but it's using a tool, an idol, in worship. So what is taking place? Verse 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. I find it interesting the Lord says to Moses, Your people... But skip down to verse 11. Now Moses is responding back to God. Moses says, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and mighty hand? So the Lord says, Moses, your people. Moses says, Lord, your people. It's just interesting, you know, that God responds one way and Moses responds in a similar way. Go back to verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. The Lord, in his anger, says, I'm going to destroy Israel. But you see the heart of Moses in verse 11. But but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn now from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster in your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by yourself. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give you descendants, give your descendants all this land. I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring disaster on these people as he had threatened. Moses, a humble man 
who pleads for the people and appear or appeals to the character of God as he intercedes for the people of Israel. Moses goes, turns and he goes down. And I find it interesting in verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. He threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. The Lord was angry. Moses was angry. The Lord was going to act against Israel. Moses acts against Israel. What does he do? Verse 20, he took the calf they had made and burned it in fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. We won't read on, but we find that Aaron then says, Moses, don't be angry. And we know there was a consequence for Israel's rebellion. But if you think about it in the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, Corinthians, look back. Your forefathers, Israel, what they did, what did they do? They sat down, or uh, they became idolaters. The people sat down to eat and drink and get up to indulge in pagan reverie. Learn from that example, Corinthians. And because the Corinthians were being tempted to eat food offered to idols, and that was going to offend some other believers, Paul says you need to consider other believers. Look at Israel. What happened to them when they did? what they did when Moses didn't come down from the mountain. Now I want us to think about an application in light of Paul writing to the Corinthians. The application is local church worship and beyond. It's not primarily individual. I think there's application to individual. But it's local church worship. He's writing to the Corinthians. How easy it is to become impatient with worship. God's design in worship involves prayer, scripture, reading, teaching, communion, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. How prone we are to get impatient with God's style of worship. Let me give you a couple examples. How impatient has the body of Christ down through the ages become impatient with simple worship? Depends on the person as to how that might happen. Some churches say, we got to hype it up. Others say, we got to tone it down. But how many worship wars have been fought just over the style of worship and music?
because we may become bored with just prayer. Scripture, communion, and the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Technology. We've been blessed with technology in our country, not limited to our country, but we have tremendous technology. Can we worship without technology, without any technology? Think about it. Worship without any technology. Not knocking technology, that's not the point. But it can become an idol in our worship of God. We've got to have it. For the fourth stanza of How Great Thou Art, we didn't use instruments. Can we worship without instruments? Or do we become dependent upon them when we have to have them? Not knocking instruments. But are certain things in worship in America, do they take the status of an idol? Don't shoot me on this one. In worship, does the length of a service take the form of an idol? Suppose I said, I'm not planning to do this. So. I said, next Sunday, we're going to start at 1045. And we're going to go to 3 o'clock. We're just going to worship. You want to be here, fine, if you don't want to be here. No, do we do that? No, is length of service, and I'm not talking about how long or how short. But does that become an idol in how we worship? Well, 12.15 now, we're way overdue. And I'm not condoning long services, I'm not talking short, just... See, Israel was worshiping the Lord, but they had a golden calf. Are we tempted to become impatient with prayer, scripture, communion, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in worship? Is that sufficient? And I'm not knocking all the other things that a church may have or beyond a local church may be used in worship. But the temptation to become impatient with what God has established. And another question. As we continue to worship the Lord in our current trial, let's be patient in worship of him. Let's not run ahead and become demanding. Impatience in walking with God seems to be a struggle. Seems to be a problem in worship for Israel. Paul gives a warning to the Corinthians about that. And wrap it up with just a couple 
secondary applications. And these I would apply more to the individual. Are we lured from the Lord and worship of the Lord or worship of the Lord with various things, with technology? Can you worship the Lord this week in your daily life without any technology? Would you make it without any technology? And I'm not knocking technology, just to illustrate the point of becoming dependent upon it. Perhaps on a little bit different angle, if you didn't have your phone or your computer games, how would you make it this week? Has that become too big of an idol? To see how well we do in life, sometimes it does us good to fast. I'm speaking only of myself as I close with an example. There was a period of time where the Lord was really challenging my heart as it relates to my own worship and my own walk with God. I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to go a month without any radio. And I don't listen to a lot of radio. I'm not going to listen to any news in the radio whatsoever. And Ruth Ann claims I have a habit when I get in the car, I see what time it is, and when the news comes on, I've got to turn the radio on to hear the news, you know, and so on. I find I get in the car, and, oh, it's 9.54, Time for the news. By the time the month passed, no radio whatsoever, the Lord had shown me my heart. You're more dependent upon that than you think, not only in relation to the news, but in some other ways. I love books. I use books in my, for my study and preparation and this goes back a couple years ago, a point in time where the Lord just seemed to say, Dan, these books are becoming too great for you. They become an idol. You use them. They're tools. But the tools has become an idol. And it's almost like the Lord said to me, okay, Dan, to show your heart, how about a year without buying a single book? I spend hundreds of dollars in books in a year. I went through a year without buying books. And the Lord again showed my heart. These books that are good have become too big in my life. And by the end of the year, I could take or leave books. Paul is saying, learn from Israel's history. You've set up an idol in worship of God. Learn from that example. Because when you're tempted... Others have been through the temptation. God will enable you to escape as you yield to him. As we think about walking with God and worship of him, we want to read Romans 
chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 reminds us that in the context of walking with God, we can be victorious because we're in Christ. Alan, Romans 6.